Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Ortz, President of Gateway Seminary, your host for the podcast, where every week we talk about specific issues related to ministry leadership. Uh, one of the issues that uh, I'm talking a lot about these days is leading major change in your ministry. Uh, in just a few days, my new book by that same title, Leading Major Change in Your Ministry, is going to be released. It's going to come out in uh, print form, ebook, audio book. And I'm very excited about it because uh, I believe that it will be a resource that can help uh, pastors and other ministry leaders as well as organizational leaders to know how to chart the course for major change in either their church or ministry organization. As many of you know, I uh, was the president of Golden Gate Seminary in Mill Valley, California when we decided to move 400 miles south to Ontario, California and build a brand new campus. And in the context of doing that, um, also to change our name to Gateway Seminary. So those were certainly major changes. But beyond those major, th that example, uh, there's some others that have been a part of my ministry over the years. I uh, was a part of uh, church relocating in my first pastorate. I was a part of planting a new church and ultimately building a campus for them in Portland, Oregon. I uh, led a Northwest Baptist Convention through some very significant changes related to its strategy and direction. And then, of course, leading the seminaries change. And so over the years, I've led uh, these three, four, five different examples of major change in ministry organizations. And so my new book is not so much just a testimonial about what the seminary went through, although it does contain the seminary story. Uh, my new book is really a compilation of what I've learned over the years of leading major change and trying to put that in a form that uh, is, uh, has some order and sense and reason to it so that leaders can use it as a guidebook going forward. Now, one of the issues uh, that I address in the book is uh, answering this question, how do you know when major change is required? Now, some leaders uh, want an intuitive answer. They, they, they sense it. They feel it. They, they believe it's a spiritual impulse. And, and I certainly don't dismiss those or discount those. I believe God does give us uh, leadership intuition and insight and spiritual impulse. But before you lead a major change, I think you need to work through a diagnostic tool to ask yourself a series of questions to determine if it really is the t uh, if it if major change really is required. So I've distilled uh, those questions uh, into five questions that each one lead us to a, a one-word theme or issue that would be important in deciding about leading major change. So let me first walk through the questions, uh, all of them, and then I'll go back and spend some time on each one on the podcast. The first question is, is the change essential to the mission? Second, is there shared urgency about the change? Third, is relational trust high enough to sustain the change? Fourth, is the timing right for the change? And finally, am I willing to see the change to completion? Now, these five questions are a diagnostic tool that I've created to help a leader walk through a process of determining if major change is required, when that major change is required, and what will be required to make that major change successful. So let's talk about the first question under the heading of essentiality. Is the change essential to the mission? The only legitimate reason for major change is advancing the mission of your church or organization as it serves God's mission. Now that is a seminal statement. The only legitimate reason for major change is advancing the mission of your church or organization as it serves God's mission. 
Now, there are many problems that cloud the issue of answering this question. First, leaders have ego needs. We want to make major change uh, to make a mark for ourselves, to show how important we are, uh, to, to do something significant or to do something that's noteworthy. All leaders have ego needs. And while God uses those ego needs uh, from time to time to push us forward and motivate us to take risks and follow him in bold ways, um, there's some good in that. The, the, there's a lot more bad in it than there is good. Ego needs. We want to make a mark for ourselves. We want to be important. We want to be noticed. We want to have people appreciate us. A number of years ago, and this is an embarrassing story to tell, but it really happened. A number of years ago, when I was a pastor in my very first church, I decided that our church needed to have a television ministry on local public television. I was convinced that if we just had a TV ministry that was on our local public access channel, that we would expand our influence, reach people with the gospel, and make a huge difference in our community. So I spent weeks, weeks, trying to get people motivated uh, to start a TV ministry. We went so far as to build sets and design, uh, design uh, uh, structures and think about programming needs and line up interviews and develop messages. We went through all of that. But quite honestly, uh, as we got closer and closer to launching it, it became more and more evident that the only reason I was doing this was about my ego. And it was painful, but I had to say, we're not doing this, and pull the plug on the whole process. And I had wasted at that point many hours of people's lives, money that we didn't need to be spending. But this major change that I was trying to bring about really wasn't about expanding the mission of our church in the context of God's mission. It was about making me more of a big deal. That's painful to say. Another problem is initiating change for comfort. Recently, a pastor told me that their church had reached a place financially where they were going to hire an associate pastor. And when he told me, he used the, this, these words. He said, we're going to hire an associate pastor to, quote, alleviate my workload. Now, I know this person fairly well, and so I said back rather abruptly, I hope you don't do that. He said, what do you mean? I said, I hope you don't spend precious resources of your church to alleviate your workload. I hope you understand that when you add staff, you actually multiply your workload because now you have to be responsible not only for yourself, but for another person as well. And beyond that, this isn't about making you more comfortable. Your church's mission is not about making you more comfortable. Your church's mission is about reaching more and more people with the gospel and making more and more disciples. So I hope you'll use that money not to alleviate your workload, but to advance the mission of your church by hiring a staff person who really is focused on the core of your mission. Another problem is initiating change that doesn't successfully address the mission. Now, ministry leaders are specialists at this. We couch everything in mission terms. We couch everything that we do in some kind of missional language that connects it to what we're doing and what we believe God wants us to be doing in the world. It takes real courage. It takes real courage uh, to look at a situation and say, you know, this really isn't necessary for the advancement of our mission, and we're simply not going to make this change or not going to use this effort or this energy or these resources this way because this change will not successfully address the mission. So the, the question is, is the change essential to the mission? There are problems that cloud answering this question, but somehow we have to cut through and get to the essentiality issue, which is, 
the mission of our church or organization as it serves God's mission. Now that's why it's so vital that every church or organization have a one-sentence statement of its mission. A one-sentence statement of its mission that it knows by heart and that it uses regularly in leadership decision-making. Now at Gateway Seminary, our mission is shaping leaders who expand God's kingdom around the world. Shaping leaders who expand God's kingdom around the world. And we are constantly evaluating everything we do about uh, against that mission. This came into stark relief when we were thinking about moving the seminary. Uh, we were in Mill Valley, uh, California, in Marin County, uh, and we were locked in a very significant land development battle there. Now, I won't detail that in the podcast, although I go into some more detail of it in the book. But the fact of the matter was we, we had reached a crisis point. We, we were uh, losing at every, in every way, both legally and politically. Uh, we, were, we were thwarted from developing our campus. We, we were really in a bad place. And we had spent, at, we had spent a couple of years uh, fighting against that process. <clears throat> For example, we had hired attorneys and we had hired land development people and we had fought uh, in every way we could to try to gain our rights or our privileges of redevelopment. We had worked really hard to try to find ways to go forward and uh, yet we were thwarted. And then we started thinking about relocating and uh, it was so difficult to think about that, to think about all the different ways that uh, this would impact the seminary. So we had some very significant issues before us. One day in a very critical meeting, Um, I made a statement like this. I said, the mission of our school is shaping leaders who expand God's kingdom around the world. Our mission is not winning land development battles. Our mission is not holding on to legacy property. Our mission is not amassing endowment. Um, Our mission is not uh, winning uh, political uh, uh, conflicts. Our mission is shaping leaders. And what we have to do is decide Will we better fulfill our mission by staying here and fighting this battle, or will we better fulfill our mission by going to another location and doing what God has asked us to do? And when I said that, that phrase, one of our senior leaders, Dr. Michael Martin, said, uh, Jeff, you have to move the seminary. Now, this was a huge statement for Mike because he had been a, uh, a very cautious person in the process. He'd never been resistant, but just cautious. And for him to say... Um, <clears throat> very strongly, you have to move the seminary, was, a, was a, a startling moment really for us as a seminary. Because what he was saying was this, uh, you've just clarified the issue, it, it's our mission. It, it, and none of these other things are our mission. What, what is our mission is shaping leaders, and we have to go find the place where we can do that the most effectively for the, for the, for the future, and we have to just get that done. So we made the decision to move the seminary, um, partly because of the pressure we were under, and partly to avoid the continued conflict and difficulty, but mostly because we honestly believed that moving here to Southern California would better position us to accomplish our mission, not in the one year, but in the next 25 to 35 years. And so you decide about the mission. Is the change essential to the mission? Essentiality. Then second, another issue is, um, another question is, is there shared urgency about the change? Is there shared urgency about the change? And of course, the key issue on this is um, urgency. 
Now, there's a couple of resources on this that are really helpful. Uh, John Cotter, a professor at Harvard, wrote a book called Leading Change, and in that book he lays out a, 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 an eightfold process of organizational change, and he says the first step in the process is creating urgency. He taught that book all over the world, and it was a bestseller, sold hundreds of thousands of copies, and then he came back and wrote a follow-up book, and his follow-up book is called A Sense of Urgency, and this is what he said in the follow-up book. In my first book, I said there were eight steps, and the first one was creating a sense of urgency. I now have taught this all over the world and, and had many people react to my book and, and use the book in different ways, and my conclusion is I underestimated how important number one really is, creating a sense of urgency, a shared sense of urgency. So he wrote an entire book about how to do number one on his eightfold model. Now, synthesizing what he has to say with maybe some Christian approaches to doing this, let me give you four suggestions for creating urgency. First, use accurate information about your ministry. Facts are friends, but they can be very painful friends. So one way to create shared urgency is to share um, accurate information about your ministry, meaning Lay out the realities about your baptism rates. Lay out the realities about your finances. Lay out the realities of your attendance. Uh, here at the school, lay out the realities of uh, issues related to enrollment and issues related to different program size and program production. You know, lay out the, the sizes or lay out the, uh, the facts of these things. And when people see facts, uh, they can draw conclusions and will most of the time draw the similar conclusions that you've drawn. And that is that there are issues in our organization that need to be addressed or fixed or repaired, and we need to get on, get on with it. Another strategy is using accurate information about your missional opportunities. In other words, laying out, here's what our community is like. Here's what our community is like ethnically, or here's what it's like culturally, or here's what it's like economically. Here's what it's like in terms of the crime or the family challenges or the struggles with gangs. Here's what our community is like. And helping people to develop a sense of urgency by seeing what's really around them and then having the capacity to do something about it. Uh, another strategy for creating shared urgency is fresh consideration of God's mission in light of your organization's mission. In other words, you, you preach and you teach about God's mission and you bring your organization's mission into the mix to help show how um, your mission is a subset of God's overarching mission and how you can help fulfill his mission by doing what you do even more effectively. And then last, uh, another strategy for creating urgency is the legitimate use of crises, both negative events and positive events. For example, a crisis like a natural disaster or a crisis like a fire or a crisis like something that happens in your community that requires a ministry response. When a crisis happens, it brings a sense of urgency and helps people come face-to-face -face with some inadequacies either in their ministry or their preparation or in what they're able to do to meet this critical need. So another uh, way to create urgency is by using crises. Now let me also caution you, don't try to manufacture these. Um, don't, don't fake it or try to use uh, something that you trump up as a crisis to motivate people, they will see through that and you will be diminished in your leadership capacity for it. Now this issue of urgency is sometimes uh, challenging because, because leaders often have a sense of urgency about a major change long before their followers. Uh, for example, when I went to my very first church, on the day that I was interviewed, when I arrived at the facility, I knew this church needed to relocate. 
Uh, it was a small, inadequate building on a, on a gravel road. It was less than a mile from the intersection of two major paved four-lane uh, thoroughfares. I knew the church needed to be, for its long-term future, in that better location. But I didn't say that the first day, but I certainly saw it, and I certainly felt it, and I had an urgency about getting something done about that. But even in my youth, I knew that I couldn't just announce that, that there had to be a process by which the church gained this, a similar sense of urgency about what it needed to do uh, going forward in the future. So part of the leadership challenge of leading major change is sensing an urgency about what needs to happen, but not letting that frustrate you or letting that motivate you to browbeat people or to criticize people, but instead letting it motivate you to use healthier strategies to generate not just urgency in your mind, but shared urgency in your mind and the minds of your followers. And I think these strategies of using accurate information about your ministry, accurate information about your missional opportunities, a fresh consideration of God's mission and showing how your mission fits into that, coupled with the legitimate use of crises. I know that when I was uh, in that first church again, uh, we ran out of space in our small worship building, and I asked the leaders if they would consider relocating, and they said, no, under no circumstances are we doing that. So we changed, uh, changed directions and added a second uh, worship service. And when that second morning worship service filled up, uh, we said, now what do we do? Do we add a third service, or would we be open to considering the possibility of relocating? And that time, uh, this was months later, <laughs> that time the, the, the leader said, well, let's at least consider the possibility of relocating, which of course led to the relocation happening. The legitimate or the crisis in this situation was we had run out of space. And I don't mean a little bit. I mean, we had completely run out of space. We were wall to wall in a very small auditorium. And they, didn't, and, 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 and they knew that, that they wanted to keep growing and keep reaching people. And they knew that it wasn't permissible to stay where we were or stay how we were. So that urgency was generated by legitimate crises of having a need for more space in a different location. Okay, a third question is, um, is relational trust high enough to sustain the change? And the issue here, of course, is trust. Is relational trust high enough to sustain the change? Now, leaders normally... Think of it this way. Leaders must earn their followers' trust. And that's one half of the trust equation. I'm going to get to the other half in just a moment. But let's talk about this first part. Leaders must earn their followers' trust. Now, there are many ways. Uh, there are many ways that leaders uh, earn trust. But the primary way uh, in the Bible is by serving people. By serving people. Uh, Jesus said, the greatest among you is the servant of all. Jesus contrasted secular leadership in his day with spiritual leadership in his kingdom by saying the defining difference was um, serving. And so leaders earn trust by serving people. And I saw this illustrated very, uh, uh, very clearly one day when a young pastor came to my office in the Northwest Baptist Convention and said, uh, hey, Dr. Orge, you're a, you have a reputation as a visionary leader, and, and I want to lay out my vision for my church, and I want you to help me to think through it and offer me any critique or any encouragement that you might have. And and uh, I said, man, I'd love to do that. So he rolls out the plan, and it was a magnificent plan. Uh, it was well thought out, uh, laid out very clearly, uh, exciting, inspiring, invigorating. It was all the things you'd hope in a plan like that. So after he laid it all out, he said, now my first question is, uh, what should I do first? And I said, that's a great question, and here's my answer. Go home and marry and bury some people. 
he looked at me with a puzzled expression. He said, excuse me, do what? And I, I, I was teasing him a little bit, but I, I said it really slowly. I said, go home and marry and bury some people. And he said, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I just don't understand. I said, well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home and serve your people and gain the trust you need to put this vision into place. I said, man, you, you're 26 years old. You're asking people in this plan for millions of dollars and tens of thousands of hours of their lives over the next 20 years to put this plan into place. And I said, the beautiful thing is, they'll probably do it with you if they trust you. <clears throat> now, how do you gain that trust? Well, you need to go home and marry and bury some people. You need to go to some weddings and gra graduations and celebrations. You need to let people know that you care about them, you love them, you celebrate with them, you honor them. And then you need to bury some people. You need to sit up in the night with a sick, uh, sick church member. You need to make some hospital runs at 2 o'clock in the morning to pray with a distraught husband who's afraid he's going to lose his wife. You, uh, you need to stand uh, on a rainy, cold day by a grave and, and uh, watch a child be put in the ground and put your arms around people who, and tell them that you may not have all the answers, but you do know that God loves them and you love them and you're not going to abandon them. I said, you need to do that. And when you've done those things... People are going to trust you, they're going to have confidence in you, and they're going to follow you. So go home and marry and bury some people. And to my great pleasure, he did that. Um, he went home and put into practice a lot of what we talked about that day and did have a significant achievement of his vision over the years. Le leaders earn trust by serving people, but they also earn trust by what I call demonstrated or proven competence. If you're not a young leader, but you're a more veteran leader, you may say, well, I don't have 10 years to serve to marry and bury. I, I, I've been called in to lead major change, and I need to get on with it. Well, you probably can, because if you're a more veteran leader, you have something that I call presumed competence, meaning uh, you've led effectively in the past, and people know you've done that, and you have a reputation for good leadership and for being trustworthy. And so when you come to a new organization or a new challenge, people will give you the benefit of the doubt to lead them forward. They'll trust you to lead them forward as long as you prove trustworthy in the process by continuing to be a competent leader. Uh, when I came to the seminary, it was somewhat like this. I had never worked for a school, and the first day I ever worked for a school, I was the president. And so there was a lot of question about whether or not I could do this job and, what I, and how I would go about doing the job. The uh, people that knew me, however, that were on the faculty or on the staff, uh, they told others, hey, listen, we've worked with this guy before in other contexts, um, he's trustworthy. He's competent. He can do the job. Let's give him a chance. And so in my early months, really, at the seminary, I was astounded at how cooperative and supportive and eager people were to make me successful in my uh, new responsibility. What I learned through that was I, I came with some presumed competence. Now, my service and my demonstrated effectiveness kept the trust, but they gave it to me initially because of what I'd done in the past. So one half of the, of the trust equation is leaders must earn their followers' trust. But the other half of the equation, which is not, self, not often talked about, is that leaders must trust their followers. Now, one of the key insights in, in my book about leading major change is that while leaders are essential for initiating major change, followers accomplish it. Followers actually accomplish major change, not leaders. And so before you can launch a major change, you have to ask yourself this very sobering question. Do I trust that the people I'm leading can actually implement this major change I'm proposing? Do I trust them enough to give them the responsibility for it 
Do I trust them enough to give them some decision-making authority for it? Do I trust them enough? Do I trust them enough to lead them mutually into a major change process? Sometimes leaders make the mistake of browbeating their followers, telling them you're sinful, you're bad, you're wicked, you can't do much, or they'll do it another way. They'll say, in the past you've made these bad decisions, you've used these wrong strategies, and now I'm here and we're going to do it better. Well, what a follower hears when you say that to them is this. Wow, the last leader claimed to have good strategies and I believed him, and now this leader's telling me that those strategies were ineffective because I wasn't capable of implementing them, and now he's wanting to do new strategies and he's expecting me to implement them. I'm no different than I was. Why would I think we're going to get any kind of different results? So part of trusting your followers is not flattering them, but building them up. It's encouraging them, it's training them, it's helping them grow in their confidence and in their, in their competence and in their confidence. It's part of your responsibility to develop your followers so that they are trustworthy and can take on the process of a major change. Well, the next question, is the timing right for the change? And the issue here, of course, is timing. Leaders often see the need for change long before their followers. That's the nature of leadership. We're always riding at the front of the wagon train. We are always looking over the horizon. We are always trying to anticipate what's coming. We're always thinking about and living in the future. And while leaders cannot predict the future, we're always trying to anticipate the future. And because of that, we often see the need for change a long time before, it's, before it comes. And so we have the challenge of waiting for the right time to initiate a major change. Um, I think about Galatians 4.4 where it says Jesus was born in the fullness of time, and the word there can mean the pregnancy of time. In other words, Jesus could have come at any time in human history, but God had a precise moment when the timing was just right, and that's when Jesus came into the world. When you're thinking about leading major change, you have to ask yourself the same question. Is the timing right for the change, the timing issue? And you'll have to resist the temptation to run ahead of both God's timetable and the timetable your followers are able to implement. So that requires leadership discipline. But there's another aspect of timing that's equally important, and that is leaders must move decisively when the time is right. I've recently been involved in a situation that's tragic in some ways, although beneficial uh, in others. I'm friends with a lay leader who was involved in his church making a decision about a building project. And they had spent a significant amount of time uh, working on developing the, uh, the strategy, the plan, and bringing forward a proposal uh, for a building project. A number of leaders in the church were involved. It was a thorough and well-vetted process. And when it came time to make the final decision, uh, a small group of people in the church instituted a pretty aggressive campaign to derail the project. And in a public meeting, the pastor caved in to the pressure from the few and pulled the pro- program or the project off the table. Now, this was devastating to his leadership team that had worked so hard to bring it forward. And they, f- they frankly felt that his actions de- demonstrated cowardice, not courage. Sad reality was one of the people on that leadership team that brought forward the recommendation had already set aside money to pay for almost the entire building project. But when the decision was made, um, that person redirected that gift to another ministry organization, and that's where I got involved, and it was counseling with him about how to do that. 
That was a tragic day for the church because the pastor didn't seize the moment. The timing was right. And to push through a wave of conflict and to stay with the plan that had been agreed to by the leadership was, would have been uh, difficult in the moment, but would have resulted in the building being constructed and significant resources flowing in to get the job done. You know, in the Bible, in the book of Acts, there's a phrase that for a long time I read over because I just thought it was a uh, literary device or it might have been just a historical footnote, but lately I've come to think a lot more about it. The phrase is the words, stood up. In the book of Acts, on several occasions, when it describes a leader, it says that leader stood up and then said something, or stood up and then did something. Leaders have to stand up, and when the timing is right, we have to take a stand and make the bold and courageous decision to bring about the leadership change that's ne- or the major change that's needed. So on the issue of timing, uh, you have to find the right moment for major change. Don't run ahead. Leaders are frequently want to do that. Don't lag behind. When it's time to lead major change, step up and lead. And then finally, the last question is, am I willing to see the change to completion? And the issue here is, of course, completion. Am I willing to see the change to completion? Answering that question means that you are willing to stay until the change is finished, and you must recognize as a leader when a major change is really finished. For example, when we moved the seminary, uh, we arrived here in Southern California in July of 2016, and many people came to visit the new campus and said to me, I'll bet you're glad this is behind you that you finally got the move made. Well, I didn't argue with them, but I knew that we had not, that, that the move was not really behind us yet. In fact, I had told our leadership team that uh, we weren't going to take vacation or anything that first summer while we were here because we had to work so intensely on the transition but we would work a whole year here, one full calendar or one full academic year before we really felt like we were, we were through the change. I was wrong about that. It's actually taken two full years. Now, we're now coming down to the end of our second year, and uh, we really do feel like that now we're past the transition and we're settling into what we call our new normal. But the reality is um, we really did go through Uh, We really did have two full years after the, quote, change was over, which meant the physical relocation, before we really had adjusted uh, to the new normal. It's amazing how many churches, for example, build a new building and pastors resign fairly shortly after that. They're burned out from the process because they did not save emotional and physical and spiritual energy for the duration of the project, which is not to the day of the groundbreak, excuse me, to the day of the ribbon cutting, but is to the day when the church really begins to feel that they've arrived in their new home and they're using it effectively. So when you think about the issue of am I willing to see the change to completion, it's not just about seeing the change to completion in the sense that you you, you get the, the change initially implemented or you get the new set of circumstances put into place. It's when those new set of circumstances or when that major change becomes your new normal that's when the change is really over. So as you sit down to count the cost about leading major change, you have to ask yourself, am I willing to see it to completion? Not the public completion, but the real completion when the organization has arrived at its new normal and the changes are fully and completely implemented. Well, a diagnostic tool, five questions to ask when you're trying to determine, is major change required? You get a yes answer on all five of these, and it's probably a signal that you're ready to go and implement major change. Is the change success essential to the mission? Is, sh- is there shared urgency about the change? Is relational trust high enough to sustain the change? 
Is the timing right for the change? And am I willing to see the change to completion? These key issues, essentiality, urgency, trust, timing, and completion, they form a diagnostic tool as you consider the possibility of major change. Use it and lead on.